0: Is now six o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. I'm your host, Vicki
1: Iden. And I'm your host, Robert McClure. In tonight's news, it was a day chock full of political news, including a marathon oral argument at the Supreme Court over redistricting.
0: A new reporting project looks at how the pandemic has shaped and shifted our new reality.
1: We hear how local businesses are coping with the Omicron variant.
0: And we'll get the most up-to-date weather report on the airwaves and travel back to the 60s for a Dr. King visit to UW.
1: All those stories and more on tonight's news, so stay tuned. First, we'll go live to London for news from around the world from the
2: BBC. Hello, this is the BBC News with Fiona MacDonald. President Biden has said he thinks Russia will invade Ukraine, but has warned that the United States will impose severe costs and significant harm on Moscow in response. In a news conference marking his first full year in office, Mr Biden said he feared a Russian attack on its neighbour would result in a conflict that could get out of hand. Moscow has about 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border, but denies its planning an invasion. Peter Bowles reports. This is only the second formal news conference held by Joe Biden during the first year of his presidency. On Ukraine, he restated his ultimatum to President Putin over the buildup of troops along the Ukrainian border. He said it would be a disaster for Russia if it launched an invasion, with the US and its allies in agreement that Russia would pay a stiff price with a major raft of sanctions, the likes of which the Russian president has never seen before. At the same conference, President Biden again defended his decision to pull U.S. forces out of Afghanistan last year. He said there was no easy way to leave the country. The question was, do I continue
3: to spend that much money per week in the state of Afghanistan, knowing that the idea that being able to succeed other than sending more body bags back home is highly, highly
2: unusual. A major global study has concluded that more than a million people worldwide died in 2019 from infections caused by bacteria that have become resistant to antibiotics. The researchers, writing in the Lancet Medical Journal, say this is higher than the annual number who die from malaria or HIV AIDS around the world. They say that drugs used to treat common infections such as pneumonia are no longer effective enough, putting millions at risk of death. Philippa Roxby reports. Based on analysis of patient records from 204 countries, this study, led by the University of Washington, put the number of deaths linked to antimicrobial resistance in the millions. Young children under five are most at risk, the researchers say, and poorer countries in sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia have had the most deaths. But they emphasise that the problem is a global health threat. And only urgent investment in the development of new antibiotics and better infection control can turn the tide. One of the favourites in the Africa Cup of Nations football tournament, Tunisia, say they've lost 12 players for their next match after they tested positive for Covid. Among those missing for the final crucial group game against Gambia later on Thursday is their star striker Wabi Kazri. The Federation says the team's remaining 16 are continuing to train. World News from the BBC. The first flights carrying aid to Tonga following Saturday's volcanic eruption and tsunami have taken off from New Zealand and Australia. The runway at Tonga's main airport had to be cleared of large quantities of volcanic ash to make it safe for planes to land. Large parts of the Tonga archipelago have suffered severe damage from the tsunami, but so far only three people are officially confirmed to have died. The Peruvian government has said that an oil spill at a seaside refinery on Saturday linked to the volcanic eruption in Tonga is the worst ecological disaster the area has seen in many years. Peru says the company that owns the facility must do more to clean the coastal region damaged by the leak. Our America's editor Leonardo Rocha reports. This spill happened when a tanker offloading oil into the Pampilla refinery was hit by strong waves
4: generated by the eruption thousands of kilometers across the Pacific Ocean. It was initially seen as an unfortunate accident caused by the tsunami. But the Peruvian foreign ministry has now issued a statement saying that the Spanish energy company Repsol must pay for the environmental damage and the loss of income of
2: fishermen and others who live in the affected area near Lima. The US Supreme Court has rejected a bid by Donald Trump to block the release of documents relating to the deadly attack on Congress by his supporters last January. The decision means White House records can be released to the Democrat-led congressional panel investigating the assault. International airlines have cancelled dozens of flights to the United States because of safety concerns surrounding aircraft altimeters and 5G technology that's just been launched. The airlines, including Emirates and British Airways, made the decision despite a temporary halt to the 5G rollout near airports. Altimeters use similar frequencies to 5G services. BBC News.
1: Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Eiden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening.
0: Vice President Kamala Harris is headed to Milwaukee on Monday, reports the Associated Press. The Vice President will be joined by Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Reagan and Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff for what is now her second visit to the Badger State. More details about the Veeps visit are forthcoming.
1: Immigrants' rights organization Voices de la Frontera has filed a lawsuit challenging the validity of a subpoena issued to them as part of a partisan election investigation. The election investigation is headed by former Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, who was hired last summer by Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to investigate the 2020 presidential election. Gableman has cast a broad net in issuing subpoenas to state and local government officials, organizations, and even even voting machine manufacturers. He's also subpoenaed Vosas de la Frontera, demanding the group hand over communications related to the 2020 election. Now, Vosas is pushing back, saying that Gableman lacks the authority to issue a subpoena. In a statement today, the group's executive director, Christine Newman-Ortiz, characterized the subpoena as, quote, modern-day McCarthyite political theater. Meanwhile, a group of Democratic lawmakers have introduced a resolution to end Gableman's investigation, characterizing it as, quote, sham investigation and waste of hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars.
0: Meanwhile, Democratic state lawmakers are floating a bill that would eliminate extreme prison sentences for minors. The bill would end the sentencing of juveniles to life in prison without the possibility of parole or extended supervision. Under the bill, people under 18 who are sentenced to prison could petition to adjust their sentence after 15 years or after 20 years in prison if a crime results in death or sexual assault of a child. The bill is spearheaded by State Representative David Bowen, a Democrat of Milwaukee. He points to the high cost of incarcerating an individual over a lifetime, about $30,000 per person per year. According to a 2020 report from the National Conference of State Legislatures, Wisconsin is just one of three states that automatically treats 17-year-olds as adults in the criminal justice system. At least 11 states have raised the age for charging minors as adults in the last decade and a half.
1: Passenger train cars intended to be part of the failed plan to bring high-speed rail to Wisconsin have finally found a home in Nigeria. The trains, built by Milwaukee train manufacturer Talgo, never found a permanent home after former Republican Governor Scott Walker nixed the plan to develop high-speed rail between Madison and Milwaukee. The trains got an international send-off at a ceremony in Milwaukee yesterday, reports WUWM.
0: School bus drivers across the state won't have to know how their engines work this spring, after the state's Department of Transportation has temporarily eased requirements for becoming a driver. The temporary allowance comes as school communities across Wisconsin struggle to find enough bus drivers. The waiver to reduce requirements, which expires in March, only eliminates a test requiring potential drivers to identify parts of an engine. All other written and road tests will stay the same, reports the Associated Press.
1: Staff at the Dane County Jail are being sued for their alleged excessive force and lack of care for a serious injury toward a former Dane County Jail inmate, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The suit filed today in federal court seeks compensatory and punitive damages for several injuries allegedly sustained at the hands of Dane County Sheriff's deputies, injuries that include a dislocated hip, a fractured hip socket, and nerve damage that required extensive surgery. It additionally alleges that staff at the Dane County Jail failed to take seriously or provide timely medical assistance for those injuries.
0: Madison officials have pushed off a decision over whether to implement a body camera pilot program in the Madison Police Department, reports Channel 3000. At last night's meeting, the Madison Common Council unanimously agreed to postpone a decision until April. Funding has already been allocated for the program after the council approved $83,000 during budget negotiations last fall.
1: Those are the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories. The Wisconsin Supreme Court heard oral arguments today for a case that will decide the future of voting district maps in Wisconsin. Listening to them also was our producer, Nate Helped Today, the Wisconsin Supreme Court heard hours of argument
5: over how district maps should be drawn across the state in a years-long partisan war over maps that will decide legislative and congressional seats for at least the next eight years. The oral arguments began at 9 a.m. and continued for over seven hours with limited breaks, an unusually lengthy allotment of time for the state's high court to hear a case. The arguments come after the state Supreme Court ruled in November that the maps should take a least changes approach to the maps. This ruling was a blow to Governor Tony Evers, whose original map, with the help of the People's Map Commission, would have made considerable changes to the current map. Ultimately, Governor Evers submitted new maps that made fewer changes. Meanwhile, the Republican-led legislators submitted their own maps, which are largely based on existing maps and would allow the legislator to remain in the hands of Republicans. These maps were vetoed by Governor Evers. But these are only the most talked-about maps being discussed today. The Supreme Court opened the floor to outside partisan groups to make their case for their maps as well, from Republicans in state Congress to a citizen's group of mathematicians. Today's argument comes down to two factors. Which map has the least changes and which map follows the Voters' Right Act of 1965? On which map has the least change? The map submitted by the GOP legislator moves more people than the map submitted by Governor Evers. Taylor Meehan, a Federalist Society attorney on behalf of the legislator, says that this does not mean that they took the least changes.
2: When a plan creates a new municipal split, That is a literal change from existing law. Existing law literally says the whole county of Polk or the whole county of this or the whole city of that should be in a district. And when a plan splits the county, splits the town, that is a change it is undisputed that the legislature's plan makes the fewest changes on this metric
5: but anthony Rusamano, an attorney speaking on behalf of governor evers says that the legislator misinterpreted what the supreme court meant by least changes and that their map most closely follows the supreme court's ruling
6: everyone agrees that the governor's map makes the least changes if you look at the map or if you uh look at the statistics governor's map moves fewer people if you look at the geographical just the the space that that the the districts cover. This is in um, page 10, I believe, table one of the Hunter response brief. The governor's map retains 98.5% compared to 90.6% of the congressmen's map.
5: The Voters' Right Act of 1965 was a landmark piece of legislation that helped guarantee voting rights for black people across the country in a variety of ways, including what is known as the Jingles Test. Jingles was adopted by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1986 as an amendment to the Voters' Right Act. Robert Yablon, Associate Professor of Law at the UW Law School, says that this was created to help protect the voting rights of minority groups.
7: And in Jingles, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, adopted a, um, a three-part um, test to determine whether you have a protected right under the Voting Rights Act. And under that test, first of all, you look to see whether there is in fact a, uh, a large uh, and compact um, a community of color. Then the second two prongs of the Jingles test ask whether um, these, uh, these communities of color vote distinctively From other communities. So uh, are there uh, communities, and and in particular, we're focusing in the Milwaukee area on black communities and Latino communities, uh, do those communities tend to prefer different candidates from other communities? And do those other communities sometimes vote in a block to uh, defeat those uh, communities of color and lock them out of political power? If the answer is yes, then you're supposed to draw districts in a way that is sensitive to the needs of those communities to ensure that they do have A fair opportunity to elect representatives of their choice.
5: While the governor argues that the legislator's maps do not fit the criteria for the jingles test, specifically in the Milwaukee area, the legislator argues that Governor Evers' maps went too far in the wrong direction, which would violate the Equals Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution. The Equals Protection Clause was just one reason why the legislature claimed that the maps submitted by the governor were illegal. Misha Saitzlin is another attorney arguing for the legislator and argued before the U.S. Supreme Court. In a redistricting case 10 years ago. He told the court in a heated exchange that many of the proposed maps are illegal due to not having an equal number of people in every district.
1: Two of the maps are plainly illegal. The governor's map and the hunter's map It's just illegal. They, they don't achieve exact population equality. If they had a chance to fix that. They didn't. The citizen mathematician
8: map moves lots of people everywhere,
1: doesn't explain.
5: The Supreme Court is expected to come to a ruling within the next few weeks. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Holt.
1: The time is 6:16 and 52 seconds. You're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: this week, the nonprofit journalism organization Madison 365 released their first installment of a new series called Lasting Impacts, which looks at how the pandemic has shaped our new reality. To learn more, producer, WORT producer producer Nate Wegehaupt spoke with Madison 365 executive editor and associate publisher Robert Chappelle about the series.
5: As we come to a close on the second full year of the COVID-19 pandemic, Madison 365, a Madison-based nonprofit journalism organization, is looking to highlight exactly how our world is changing with their newest series, Lasting Impacts, which is its first installment released earlier this week. With me today is Robert Chappell, the executive editor and associate publisher at Madison 365. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
9: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Nate.
5: So just starting things off, what first got you interested in this topic?
9: Well, actually, it it started um, last year with a different project that we did with the Institute for Nonprofit News. Uh, Actually got some grant funding to do a project, on, generally speaking, on this same question on a sort of regional basis across the Midwest. And we worked with an organization up in Wausau called the Wausau Pilot and Review, and we did a three-part series on the lasting changes that the pandemic has caused in the incarceration system here in Wisconsin, which is really fascinating. And that um, just got us thinking about, you know, this thing is going to be, well, cross your fingers, it'll be over at some point, right? But things are really being affected and really changing at a fundamental level, especially as relates to communities of color, right, who are disproportionately impacted by all this stuff. So we're trying to just look ahead and think about in 2025, 2026, what are we going to point to and say, this is like this because of that pandemic? So, we're just trying to kind of galvanize that right now. And, um, you know, journalism being the first draft of history and all that, you know, we're just trying to like look at it right now and while well, we're still in the midst of it and see if we can identify those systems and those institutions that are maybe going to even improve as a result of this, uh, of all this um, pandemic.
5: So the first installment of your series here, lasting mm-hmm. impacts, sort of focuses on nonprofits. Can you tell me right. specifically what got you interested in covering that topic? Uh, how nonprofits are, sure. are?
9: Yeah, well, we are a nonprofit organization, as you mentioned, and we cover a lot of nonprofits because we work primarily in those communities of color where there's a lot of nonprofit activity. And that was one of the first real big occurrences at the beginning of the pandemic was the nonprofits uh, just jumped into the breach, right? Uh, when you had schools shutting down, you had kids at home, you had people losing jobs, you had just a really urgent, immediate needs. And there was a, a ton of nonprofit activity, both in donations, you know, people funding, running to the emergency grants for all that work, but also just the people on the ground getting food to people, right? Getting gas to people, getting you know, dealing with mental health, dealing with violence and things like that. So once they did that, and kind of helped the, the whole community and the whole society through that op- that first period. The question is now, uh, two years into it, I have my, my, my initial question was, there was a big influx of donations for all that work. Have, the, have those donations fallen off? Or have, have the, has the philanthropic community moved on? you know, Or, or is there a, a, increase, a general increase in engagement with the nonprofit world? based on all that good work they did in the early part of the pandemic. So so I just talked with a handful of nonprofit organization leaders who have been doing the work, you know, these past couple of years, uh, as well as some folks on the philanthropy side and the foundation side. And just ask those questions, you know, what changed in these two years and, and what which of those changes are, are gonna stick? That was that was the primary question.
5: So getting into the article itself, one yeah. thing that mm-hmm interested me was the whole working together aspect that nonprofits are doing right now. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Is that abnormal in the nonprofit world?
9: You'd think it wouldn't be, right? You don't want it to be. It sounds nice to collaborate, but the fact is that the way things are kind of set up, the way things were set up, and this is one of the things that might actually change, is that it's kind of set up where nonprofits are competing for funding, right? You're competing for relatively small amounts of dollars from the government, and from foundations. So there's a, uh, while we should all want to collaborate, there's certain, in certain cases, there's sort of a disincentive to collaborate, right? Because we all need our little slice of the pie. Now, what happened early in the pandemic is, as an example, in Dane County, the Boys and Girls Club, the day the schools shut down, uh, they just sort of impulsively announced, we're going to start collecting money. We're not sure what we're going to do with it yet. We're going to collect money for for families who are going to have their kids at home now that have to feed them and have to care for them and stuff. And they ended up raising, you know, over a million and a half dollars and distributing it through other nonprofits, right? Which is something that the boys of both hadn't done before. You're basically raising money to give to other nonprofits to then get to the people. And that was just an early example of just a, we needed all needed to work together. We all needed to chip in.
5: So another thing that was talked about in the article is the mm-hmm. intersection between the pandemic and racial inequality, both mm-hmm. sort of here in Wisconsin and across the nation. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? How do these two things relate to mm-hmm. each other and how are nonprofits sort of dealing with that?
9: Sure. Yeah, great question. Um, the, I mean, the, 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 the pandemic, first of all, disproportionately impacted communities of color, right? Just as there's been health, there's health disparities going back to you know, centuries. So that's not, that wasn't shocking, but that caused the need for people to engage with the racial and equity issues around this disease. However, at the same time, you have the murder of George Floyd, you have the, the racial justice reckoning that happened over that whole summer. And the fact that like a substantial portion of the economy and the, of the society was kind of shut down and people were kind of on pause, gave people a chance to kind of reflect, first of all, but also to be really more aware of that those, those happenings, or that or those events, than they would have been otherwise. So you have the sort of perfect environment for that kind of conversation to start. Uh, and people just became more aware of it, which, and then we saw, obviously, all the protests and the, and the movement on those issues. Then you have corporations, companies, you know, hiring DEI managers, doing intentional diversity, equity, inclusion work. And you have the same thing in the nonprofit world and the foundations, uh, who are really invested and, and, you know, get get to the point of, like, we're not going to just talk about this anymore. We're going to do something. We have some dollars to put into this, you know, so that that became just more a more focused and intentional effort to fund organizations that are doing that work and that equity work, um, but also to engage black and brown philanthropy. Um, I spoke with Angela Davis with the Development Director at Madison Community Foundation, and she said that, you know, philanthropy has always existed in the Black community, but it's never been called philanthropy, right? It's it's church or it's family getting together and passing the hat or whatever. And those families are now getting a bit more engaged into the more, quote-unquote, formal philanthropy process. So you've got Black families starting foundations and starting these trust funds to fund, like, scholarships and education for their next generation. So a lot of different um, aspects to that whole that, that racial equity question that actually I think pretty exciting.
5: So from what you've researched, what's been the biggest shift in practices within the nonprofit world, and do you think that these sort of things will stick once the pandemic is over?
9: You know, the, to me the biggest shift the, the, in, just in the day to day operations of the nonprofit world is that funding flexibility has become a really big thing. And this is something that I heard from several different people who said that this was something that we've been working on for a while. And we just, there was reluctance, you know, in the, in the business, in the industry. And, but now the, the pandemic forced us to do this, where, like you know, to, to apply for a grant, if you're in a small nonprofit, you're going to apply for a grant of $10,000, say. It's a 15-page application. It takes one, you know, you have, you have maybe two or three staff people. It takes somebody a whole day to do that application. Uh, whereas now, like uh, the Green Bay, Greater Green Bay Community Foundation, uh, Rashad Cobb up there told me that they've got almost all their applications down to a single page, right? Which is something they kind of wanted to do. They kind of wanted to make it more efficient, not add additional burdens to these small nonprofits. They were able to just say like, okay, you know what? We need to get this money out the door. Give them one page application, we're going to meet weekly, we're not going to have an eight week decision making process for this money, we're going to meet every week, we're going to make decisions every week, we're going to check out the door. And then on the other end, reporting is also a big burden on nonprofits, where you have to, you know, answer 37 questions, you know, 1000 words each, they've actually in, in green at the Green Bay Community Foundation, they've actually shifted that. So they're not even doing written reports anymore. They're just having a phone call at the end of it. You know you've spent all the money, you did the project you were going to do. Now let's just talk it over and see how it went and see what you might need next, rather than making somebody sit down for a full day and fill out a, a report. You know so it's just the 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 efficiency, the flow of the money from the philanthropist through the foundation to the nonprofit to the boots on the ground to getting the work done has just that time and that efficiency has, has just collapsed and it's just a, a, working a lot better, it seems like. and and that's one I think that's one I think we definitely will.
5: Tick. Well, Robert, do you have just any final thoughts on the Lasting Impacts project that you'd like to share with us?
9: Sure. It's exciting. It's, it's going to be we're going to be doing these stories for the whole year. We're going to be doing we're going to be looking at arts and culture. We'll be looking at sports. We're looking at education. Obviously, the big thing, uh, workplace, uh, all sorts of uh, different aspects of, of our daily life that we think are going to fundamentally change in some way uh, going forward. So we're, we're excited to, to look into it and get our reporters uh, on this project.
5: I've been talking with Robert Chappell, the executive editor and associate publisher at Madison 365. You can read the first entry in their new series, Lasting Impact, online at madison365.com. Robert, thank you again for talking with me today.
9: All right. Thanks, they Appreciate it.
1: And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News on WORT. (coughs) Pardon me. Stay with us for the second half of the show. We've got a lot more coming at you. How local music venues are faring during the pandemic. We'll take a trip to UW-Madison in the 60s to hear from Dr. Martin Luther King. And has the atmosphere lost its capacity to produce snow Well, we'll have a couple opportunities coming at us. Actually, more than that as we go into the weekend. I'll give you a complete forecast with all the details you can stand to hear in about 10 minutes.
0: But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash.
3: Bonjour, this is Archigoni. Building Unity Wisconsin will hold a virtual sustainable Saturday night on January 22nd. Indigenous leaders and allies who are working to stop pipelines and other threats to the earth will present their efforts and offer ways you can help. The event will be held via Zoom from 6 to 7.30 p.m. on January 22nd.
0: You can watch the event on Facebook Live by going to the Building Unity WI Facebook page. More information and registration for this event can be found at buildingunitywisconsin.org. The virtual sustainable Saturday night is on January 22nd at 6 p.m. Bringing community events to you for over 45 years, this is WORT 89.9 FM and wortfm.org.
2: BBC News with Fiona MacDonald. President Biden has said he thinks Russia will invade Ukraine, but has warned that the United States will impose severe costs and significant harm on Moscow in response. In a news conference marking his first full year in office, Mr Biden said he feared a Russian attack on its neighbour would result in a conflict that could get out of hand. But he acknowledged that NATO countries were not united on how to respond to the Russian military action in Ukraine. A major global study has found that more than a million people died in 2019 from infections caused by bacteria that have become resistant to antibiotics. The researchers, writing in the Lancet Medical Journal, say this is higher than the annual number who die from malaria or HIV-AIDS around the world. The Peruvian government has said that an oil spill at a seaside refinery on Saturday, linked to the eruption of a volcano in Tonga, is the worst ecological disaster the area has seen in many years. The foreign ministry said that the Spanish energy company Repsol must pay for the damage. The first flights carrying aid to Tonga following Saturday's volcanic eruption and tsunami have taken off from New Zealand and Australia. The runway at Tonga's main airport had to be cleared of large quantities of volcanic ash to make it safe for planes to land. One of the favourites in the Africa Cup of Nations football tournament, Tunisia, say they've lost 12 players for their next match after they tested positive for Covid. Among those missing is their star striker, Wabi Kazri. International airlines have cancelled dozens of flights to the United States because of safety concerns surrounding aircraft altimeters and 5G technology that's just been launched. The airlines, including Emirates and British Airways, made the decision despite a temporary halt to the 5G rollout near airports. BBC News.
1: Time is now 632 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, with my co-host Vicky Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half.
0: The Omicron variant has hit the local music scene hard. That's the subject of recent reporting from Andy Moore in local outlet Tone Madison. Last week, Moore also hosted the 8 O'Clock Buzz, during which he spoke with representatives from two local music venues about how they've been affected by the newest COVID wave.
3: At the top of this week, I did some reporting for Tone Madison on, on how small venues are coping with Omicron, and we'll spend the next part of the show talking with what I had hoped to be two people who were kind enough to participate in that story and for whom these stakes are very high. Brennan Nardi is the owner of Madison's Harmony Bar. I understand we're having trouble getting her on the line. I'll check that. Oh, she's on. That's good. Um, And Brennan is here, and then we also are pleased to introduce Topher Christensen. He's a promoter uh, and a booker who schedules shows for the Baroque. 2021 ended with several... Area New Year's Eve shows being canceled. Brennan, you decided to stay the course with the bill that that night with the blues band, the Jimmies. And I know that was a tough call for you. Walk us through that decision to go on with the show that night.
8: Um, Well, you know, it was sort of leading up to it in the weeks before. It was stressful, as you mentioned in your article, and, you know, in in close contact with Jimmy Vogley of the Jimmies and our, our Tim who books shows for me. And we just, You know, we looked at the numbers. We had sold 75 tickets leading up to the show, and we had a lot of people that were super excited. I had been in contact with each and every one of them by phone and by email saying, you need to be double vaccinated. Uh, You need to show your, you know, your vaccination card. You need to show us your ID to make sure. And everybody, uh, without exception, uh, said, yes, absolutely. Um, We're ready to go. We want to do this. Um, a lot of jimmy's folks who, who come out to see the jimmy's they aren't from this area as they're coming in from out of town and so that was stressful for me and for them because they were you know traveling in, in the winter and so we just decided you know we're going to limit capacity and we're going to we're going to do this you know we're going to put out uh, you know some some great snacks and great food we're gonna have a champagne toast and we're going to do this and um, Jimmy and his folks were, you know, obviously on board and 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 on the same boat with us, being sort of yeah. cautious but also wanting to have a good time. And and limiting capacity had yeah, its this.
3: consequences. You had it, the limiting capacity. You had complained to me, caused you the the venue essentially after the band was paid to break even. Is that correct?
8: Yes, absolutely. And you know, it is what it is. You know, we're in these times. We're we're struggling all financially. And you know, these musicians. I I was thinking about it. You know, your article mentioned the financial impact of it. And it it was financial, you know, we didn't make money. actually probably looking back, didn't, didn't make money. In fact, lost money. Um, but at the same time, you know, we, we paid our musicians, we paid our staff and, you know, we had a good night and my, I, I haven't heard or or heard of anyone who who got COVID because of it. And not that that's a good or, you know, not, not, I don't know, you know, we don't, we don't know. (laughs) COVID's been crazy, but Mm -hmm. we haven't heard that it's been a, any kind of a a negative impact on people's health.
3: Topher, thanks for joining us. What, What has January been like for the Baroque?
6: January has been an interesting month so far. I mean, typically booking shows in January is more difficult. So thankfully, as I think I mentioned in the article as well, we didn't have a lot of content on the calendar. So it's kind of been helpful to us. We have had to reschedule a few things cancel a few things based on either vans getting sick or not having the proper staff to be able to pull off a show but you know thankfully i don't think it's going to be a devastating month for us just based on how we had previously booked the month it definitely has been complicated and you know we are seeing the, the events that we do have not as well attended as we had hoped but you know that's just kind of far for the course the last couple of years so
3: so, in a way, the, the coincidental traditional annual sort of January dip has, has been a good thing.
6: I mean, if I could have picked any month to have a spike, this would be it. You know, it's not yeah. good for anybody, yeah. but it's, yeah. for us, at least, it's the yeah. right month for it to happen.
3: What are you hearing from musicians about their own worries, if anything, with Omicron, Tofer?
6: Um, You know, we've had some conversations with the bands that are coming up in the next week or two just to kind of gauge people's level of comfort. And, you know, we did go to fully vax only for attendance for our New Year's Eve show going forward. You know, we were prior to that allowing people to show negative tests, which we're no longer doing. And, you know, so far the bands that are on the books for January are, you know, electing to move forward with the shows. Um, we obviously if people are not comfortable or if people are sick they shouldn't play and we're letting people reschedule or cancel and that's just you know the nature of of these times but for the most part it it feels like bands want to play and they miss playing and you know a lot of local bands playing isn't it's not their livelihood it's what they do for fun they have day jobs so they don't need to be doing shows some of the bands that we book and you know they're still electing to keep the shows on the books because they want to support the scene and you know, they want to just have some loyalty in their life. And, you know, unless someone isn't healthy, it seems like most fans still want to play. So we hope people come and we welcome people with open arms and hope we have enough folks to, to have it be worthwhile for everybody.
3: I'm talking to Topher Christensen and Brennan Nardi about the COVID crunch in small venues. Topher, we'll, we'll stay with you on this. Um, How much has the borough been able to benefit from state and or federal COVID relief help?
6: I mean, a great deal, and that's the reason we're still open, to be totally honest with you. Without the grants on the federal and state level, there's no way that, you know, venues our size would still be around. You know, the bills, they come every month, and you have to pay them, and we're closed for so long that without that money, it would just have been totally impossible. So we're super grateful. Brennan, has that
3: been somewhat of a—I'm sorry to uh, cut you off, Tofer. Brennan, has that been uh, uh, some help for the Harmony?
8: Yes, we haven't had live music grants per se, but we've had um, local, county, state, federal grants for restaurants, payroll protection program money that has uh, literally kept us in business. Business also a staffer of ours, Marcus Johnson, who I think everyone knows. If you know the harmony, you know Marcus did a, a GoFundMe last year that raised forty thousand dollars from friends and family and customers and patrons, and that literally paid you know paid Marcus to keep working and then everybody else.
3: Yeah. That was that was uh, that was huge. This is for both of you. How time-consuming is the act of chasing federal or state or or local relief money? Topher?
6: Well, I mean, at the time that all this was coming together, there weren't shows happening, so we weren't doing a whole lot, and we put all our time and effort into you know, those applications and helping people kind of talk to politicians and get the word out that this is sorely needed. And, and things like NEVA came to, into existence during this time, which is now a you know, national nonprofit organization helping independent promoters and venues. And a lot of good for live music has come out of a terrible time. And so, you know, it's helped so many people around the country stay in business.
8: I would agree with that. <laughs> totally agree with that. Yep. yep. What
3: about your st- the uh, the staff? Have, have you had um, illness among staff members? Brennan and and then Topher.
8: Yeah, I've got two out now uh, with COVID, and so we've been pulling extra hours. The weeks before Thanksgiving, the weeks in between Thanksgiving and Christmas were brutal. I had ten of our twenty staff members, you know, out in on different days uh, and weeks. So yeah, it's been it's been rough, and I and I, you can't outrun it at this point, so we're just you know we're we're living with it.
6: Topher, same. You know we have a much smaller staff, and we have had several people get sick. And when that happens, obviously when you are you have a smaller staff, it throws sort of kinks in your scheduling. So yes, I think anyone right now in the hospitality or events business is experiencing this, and it is difficult for everybody.
3: In in just uh, the minute or two minutes that we have left here, scientists are starting to predict a curb and and then an end to the omicron surge. But they don't have to run a business. (laughs) What do you think will be happening in the next month? What are you preparing for, Brennan?
8: Living off of the the, uh, generosity of others, (laughs) the grants and the loans that we've received to get through the next month, month and a half. I can see it. (laughs) I can see it coming down the road, but um, I think people are going to come back. And if we can get outdoor seating again, if the three-year program can be extended, the the city was amazing last year, even if it can't be extended, if we can you know, get permanent permits to do that. I think that um, people will come in droves. People want to be, you know, a friend of mine said to me before all this, as this was starting, Brennan, you know, you know what happened after the first pandemic uh, was the Roaring Twenties. So I'm hoping and hopeful that we can, you know, we can see, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel.
3: Talk for real quickly from you.
6: I'm starting to feel kind of a shift amongst the populace of, you know, how do we live with this? It's not going away. Where in the past it it was, you know, what's the new medicine coming that's going to put this thing out, you know, out and make it disappear. And I think people are finally figuring out that's not happening. So how do you live Mm -hmm. with this shifting sickness and, you know, how do you let it affect your life? And people are choosing in, in some regards not to let it affect their life anymore and still wanting to go out and, you know, experience culture and have a good time. So. You know, I'm hoping more people figure out a way
3: to do that. Topher Christensen is a promoter and uh, the the show booker at the Baroque Brennan Nardi, owner of the Harmony Bar. Thanks to both of you, and and please take care. Thanks again for joining us.
8: Thank you. Thank you.
0: And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with W O R T Weather Guru Rob McClure.
1: Well, this winter may not be much for snowfall so far, but the sunshine accompanying the Arctic air influxes that we've had have certainly been a has certainly been a plus at a time of year too when warmer air temperatures can sometimes lead to extended periods of daytime cloud cover. So, those of you with uh, seasonal affective disorder, anyway, will appreciate that. We expected to see a lot more cloud cover as we warmed up this past couple of days, but uh, an overperforming sun, I guess we'll say, uh, managed to take the temperatures up to 36 yesterday before this most recent Arctic air mass started the temperatures plunging again shortly after midnight. In fact, today's high temperature will be recorded as 35 degrees, despite the fact that most of the afternoon involved air temperatures 25 degrees colder than that. Well, one thing about the Arctic outbreaks we've had recently, and this is the fifth so far this month, I will point out, is that they've been mercifully short, usually just a couple of days. And that will be the case for this current episode as well, and the one that will hit us again about Tuesday of next week. And the reason for this uh, is a continuing, very active pattern in the upper air across the continent, something that we've been seeing actually since back in December, And that very active pattern is visible still this evening on the Water Vapor Image of North America that's linked on the WORT Weather webpage. Briskly moving short waves continue to pass across the continent in the upper air, though in the last couple weeks the wider long wave pattern has become somewhat more ossified with an upper ridge over the west coast and a downstream upper trough over us. So the passing shorter waves then uh, have just basically served to enhance those respective larger features in their places rather than, say, coax them into a two new positions that might possibly bring us a snowier weather pattern. But at least we're getting our Arctic air in uh, more bearable doses rather than, say, one full two-week stretch, which is what happened in February of last year. And as we change air masses each of these times, we get at least some chance of seeing snow, even if the ridge trough pattern across the continent and the northwesterly upper air trajectory between them is not the most conducive for large amounts of snow. And while we've been unlucky in recent weeks, the odds over this coming weekend are looking better with at least three identifiable shots of snow, though these will again, I think, all be minor incidents. The first of these systems will pass later Friday night into Saturday morning as this current Arctic air mass rolls off to the east and gives us at least a few-hour window of warm air and moisture return out ahead of the next cold front, and Arctic high-pressure cell that will be passing into the area and across the area on Saturday. A second disturbance, then, passing mostly in the mid- and upper troposphere, will track over us on Sunday morning for perhaps another few hours of light snow. Then a somewhat better developed low-pressure circulation will be lifted into existence on the nose of a much more robust Arctic uh, outbreak that will be ensuing from about Monday afternoon through Tuesday. The track of that circulation center is still somewhat in question, but it's definitely the most organized of these three systems and could potentially bring us well, maybe a few inches of snow if its circulation pa- uh, center if happens to pass, uh, say, just to our southwest. So, something anyway to look forward to in terms of snow. We'll see how all of those end up playing out. Uh, Back to this evening, the the clear skies will allow temperatures to drop to uh, zero or slightly below, though the active northwesterly winds, which will be up at 8 to 12 miles per hour and keeping the chill values quite low tonight, uh, will not likely allow for too much uh, thermometer dropping below that. Tomorrow, clear skies and full sunshine will drag the thermometer back up towards about 10 or so on decreasing northwesterly winds, which will be coming down to about 3 to 7 miles per hour by evening. Winds will die off more overnight as the center of high pressure passes, allowing temperatures to drop uh, to the mid-single digits below zero. Winds will back slightly uh, or lightly more west and southwest on Friday, eventually drawing in some high clouds towards uh, day's end, but most of the day should be clear with a high temperature in the mid-teens. Cloud cover will increase overnight, and southwesterly winds up at 8 to 15 miles per hour will hold temperatures around 10 degrees for low temperatures. Those may come up a bit towards dawn as the winds ratchet up more. Light snow is possible for a few hours late in the night or early morning on Saturday, and temperatures Saturday will hit 20 or so. On westerly winds up at 8 to 15 miles per hour, skies will stay mostly clear. uh, Sorry, mostly cloudy or at least partly cloudy overnight into Sunday, with a low temperature around 10. Skies will become more cloudy cloudy as we go into the day. And another round of light snow, maybe half an inch or so, will fall on Sunday morning with uh, skies lifting and breaking some later in the day and a high temperature in the upper teens. And then more snow is possible with that system as we go into and through the day on Monday. It looks like the best time for snow will be in the morning to midday hours of Monday. And we could pick up 1 to 2 inches at that time, possibly a little more than that if we get lucky with the trajectory of that system. At the current moment, it's 8 degrees At the temperature is the temperature on Bedford Street at the station. The dew point temperature is 4 below zero. The uh, skies are almost completely clear, just a few passing high clouds. Winds are out of the northwest at 13 miles per hour, still gusting well above 20 from time to time. And the barometer is rising at 30 point zero, 30.33 inches of mercury.
0: It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to the UW campus in 1962 and 1965 for two addresses by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the future of integration. Stu Levitan has the details on this week's Madison in the 60s.
4: They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s Dr King comes to town March 30, 1962 In a speech entitled The Future of Integration, the Reverend Dr Martin Luther King Jr tells an enthusiastic capacity crowd at the Union Theater that quote Segregation is on its deathbed And the only problem is how expensive the nation will make its funeral. He says segregation is being challenged by those he calls, quote, maladjusted men of goodwill. Be maladjusted, he exhorts those who oppose racial inequality and discrimination, adding, quote, I never intend to adjust to segregation, discrimination, religious bigotry, and economic deprivation he cites several reasons for optimism that the civil rights movement will reach its goal, including the reduction in segregated schools since the 1954 Supreme Court decision holding segregation in public schools unconstitutional, the elimination of the poll tax in all but five southern states, the beginning of economic justice for blacks, and the almost total elimination of lynching. But we still have a long way to go, he adds, citing just as many reasons for pessimism, including terrorism against civil rights leaders, supporters, and their houses of worship, low voter registration by blacks, discrimination in employment, which has left the percentage of blacks living in poverty three times higher than the percentage of whites, and the low number of black students attending integrated public schools in the South the 23-year-old Baptist preacher lashes organized religion for the part it plays in supporting the status quo. The churches still remain the major segregated institutions in America, he says, with Sunday schools, quote, the most segregated schools in the nation. He says President Kennedy has done, quote, some significant things for civil rights, but has not yet, quote, given the leadership the enormity of the problem demands. King calls on Kennedy to issue an executive order banning bias in any housing receiving federal funds, which he said would serve as a second Emancipation Proclamation. Describing himself as realistic, King says that integration is neither impossible nor inevitable. But he says the movement of nonviolent resistance will succeed because blacks, quote, "...will wear you down by our capacity to suffer." He calls nonviolent action, quote, a potent weapon which disarms the opponent and exposes his moral defense. It's also the only practical tactic, he notes, as, quote, whites control the instruments of violence. And by holding that the moral end must align with the means used, he says nonviolence can be applied throughout one's life. Hate the system, he counsels, but not the perpetrators of that system and King dismisses what he calls the myth of educational determinism, that whites will support integration once they understand it better. He says the movement's goal is, quote, not to change internal attitudes at first, but to change the external effects of bad internal attitudes. He doesn't mind if people don't like him, he says, quote, as long as they don't lynch me. When King returns on November 23, 1965, He's the reigning Nobel laureate, a Peace Prize winner in the Cow Palace, getting a standing ovation from the Stock Pavilion crowd of about 2,600. Although King's talk bears the same title as his 1962, it differs in substance, including calls for a massive program of public works, expanded public education, an increase in the minimum wage to $2 an hour, and the employment of blacks in Southern law enforcement, Blacks today have more dignity, but are still far from equal, he says, and are instead consigned to, quote, an economic legion of the damned, an impoverished alien in an affluent society with widespread economic deprivation of the Negro, both in North and South. A piece of freedom is not enough for us as human beings, he says. A piece of liberty no longer suffices. Freedom is like life. Freedom is one thing. It is indivisible. You have it all or you are not free. He says there is a new barrier to full freedom for blacks in the South and, quote, overdose of tokenism, which he says manifests itself by the admission of just a few black students into an all-white school or a handful of black workers in a lily-white factory. And the crisis is deepening, he notes, as two-thirds of all blacks in America live in poverty and deprivation. King celebrates the Voting Rights Act passed earlier this year, which he calls the figurative completion of the march from Selma to Montgomery. But he laments that its purposes are being thwarted by, quote, "...intimidation, harassment, firings, and evictions." and he criticizes the federal government for not doing more to protect Southern blacks who want to vote. The act's purpose, he warns, quote, can be defeated by this cautious restraint of enforcement, which he says reflects that the Department of Justice, quote, has been working under the wrong theory, namely expecting voluntary compliance with the law. Noting that the presence of federal registrars has led to a tripling of black registration, he says, quote, By bold enforcement, the recalcitrance of the segregationists can be made as impractical as it is immoral. King calls for three reforms which he says are, quote, irresistibly imperative for the reforming of the racist system of justice in the South, a law to make the murder or intimidation of persons seeking to exercise their constitutional right a federal felony, federal standards for the selection of jurors in state courts, and the employment of blacks in southern courts, police forces, jails, and prisons. As he did in 1962, King calls for a kind of maladjusted discontent among persons opposing injustice and says, quote, Our world is in dire need of a new organization, the International Association for the Advancement of Creative Maladjustment. King closes his hour-long address affirming his faith that, quote, we will be able to hew out of the mountains of despair the stone of hope, so that someday soon blacks can say, we are free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. As King is speaking, the campus is voting for a new student government. Among those elected to the WSA Student Senate, history graduate student Paul Soglin. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, freedom-loving, listener-supported WRT news team, I'm Stu Levitan.
1: And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan, and thanks also to guest host Andy Moore from the 8 O'Clock Buzz. Chuck Kademan was the on-air engineer for this evening's broadcast. Nate helped produced it. And Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure.
0: And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night. T. Madison.
10: i'm jonathan Zerov. i hosted the friday eight o'clock buzz for decades i loved meeting so many folks in our community and beyond through this weekly show and if you love listening consider throwing your hat in the ring to be the next host of the friday buzz we're looking for someone to keep the same upbeat energy in the show you'll work with a team of people including our producer engineer and dj to give an eclectic blend of local life Bonus points if you love the thrill of live radio. Bonus points, too, if you love local arts and culture. The next host must be able to reliably host from the station on Friday mornings and make a commitment to at least two years. Hosting meant the world to me, and maybe it'll mean the world to you, too. So give it a try. More information and the link to apply is on our website. That's wortfm.org slash new Friday buzz, all one word finalists will be encouraged to take a shot at hosting a show if you have any questions about the position call news director sholly Pittman at 608-321-9586 thanks for your support over the past 28 and a half years and now i'm out of hair